A world away, a river runs. The Kosi River travels down from the Himalayas, through Tibet, Nepal, and finally, into India. Those thinking rivers are mostly water would be surprised at the Kosi. It sometimes seems that this river is made up of more silt and mud than water, and it is as fierce as it is unpredictable. While it transports nutrients to the valley below, it can also change course suddenly and dramatically, flooding villages and farmland overnight. The home of the Kosi, North Bihar, is one of the areas of the world where climate change is felt the most acutely. Here the floods are immense and devastating. Confronting the problem brings up issues of social justice, economy, and culture. Today we're talking to an environmental scientist and anthropologist who just happened to live in this area, studying natural disasters, when the two most devastating floods of the region hit. This is Spark Dialogue Podcast. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology, and how they relate to culture, religion, policy, and how we're constantly redefining ourselves as human. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Hi, I'm Luisa Cortesi. I'm an environmental anthropologist. Right now, I am assistant professor of development at the International Institute of Social Studies in the Netherlands. I'm also a Marie Curie Fellow at the Freiburg Institute of Advanced Studies and affiliate professor of environment and sustainability at Cornell University. One thing about climate change, it doesn't just mean that the world is getting warmer. Wherever you are around the world, climate change is affecting the local climate and weather in different ways. In some places it is drought, and in some places it's stronger storms. Places that never saw snow may get a foot of snow, or in another place it might flood. Luisa has lived around the world and saw firsthand how climate change has affected different places. In the last 10 years, I lived in Europe, in uh, the US, in the UAE, and in India. I also work in a couple of occurrences in Burkina Faso. Growing up, I lived mostly in Italy, in both the north and the south, and I received my first master at the University of Turin and uh, lived in several countries in Europe. Um, I moved out from Italy pretty much as soon as I became an adult and I started living in India and working there. So I've been on and off uh, living in India since 2003. Stepping around the world, Luisa has seen firsthand how different these places are, their climate, their water, and how they're affected by climate change, and also how their people respond to climate change. All these places have very little in common, but for a few global phenomena, one of which, well, the most striking of which is climate change, what is global about it is, for example, the exacerbation of extremes. Another marker of climate change is the unpredictability and asseasonality of the weather. In 2015, and it was, I think, the day before Christmas, we had 25 degrees Celsius in New York City, and then we had minus 25 degrees in March. I remember in sub-Saharan Africa seeing floods in places which were defined by water scarcity. 
But it's important to realize that climate change is about the weather that feels out of context, but it's not about the one event, it's about the pattern, the trend. What I'm interested the most in relation to climate change are disasters of water, not only due to scarcity of water, but also to water abundance. Think floods of different types and also um, disaster of water quality, such as pollution. But climate change is not only an enhancer. Climate change is a game changer. The fact that the weather is unpredictable makes it unmanageable. And what we are learning is that most of our everyday infrastructure is actually dependent on the weather. People are reacting very differently to climate change. There are those who don't believe in it, don't want to think about it. Those who are worried and depressed about that. Think about those who believe that the market will fix everything because somehow the market wouldn't benefit from things collapsing and so they'll take responsibility. Or those who believe that every little action counts and that recycling, for example, will be sufficient to slow things down despite the matter being so serious that it's very clear that it's going to take much more than citizen commitment to slow it down. Climate change is manifesting itself differently across the globe. In sub-Saharan Africa, there are immense droughts, while in Bangladesh, people crowd together worrying about rising waters. In the Atlantic, hurricanes become stronger while in the South Pacific, entire island chains are going underwater. In the North, glaciers melt, and Arctic animals have difficulty finding places to live. Still, there are aspects of climate change that are similar. It is a global phenomenon, one that we are all facing. There is no way to escape. There is no way to build a fortress and avoid the effects of climate change. It's not going to happen. The idea to retreat in land is not only elitist, is plain unrealistic. The fact that this is a global phenomenon means that we have a lot more in common than ever before. Just to be clear, I believe that we need to study climate change in its details and that it is from the details that we can discover the pattern. A pattern that I've noticed is, for example, confusion. You know, how on earth are we going to live with this? Uh, what's happening? People realize that they sort of knew how was the weather in April, which flower will bloom when, how to make sure they had a shelter in a particular time of the year, and that all these knowledges are being turned upside down. And such confusion is very legitimate. You know, the belief that we are going to find the switch to bring things back to normal, we are going to have a, a way to get out of this. There's almost a religious ethos that something will save us. Either politics or recycling or scientists, you name it. You read books on climate change that do their best to end on an optimistic tone. Not because the argument leads them there, but because they feel it's right to make people feel good. And I don't mean to be neither pessimistic nor optimistic. I just notice, I see, I see a lot of hope. That hope that something will come and solve the situation. Today, Louisa is going to take us on a journey 
the very northernmost part of India, to an area called North Bihar. Bihar is just below Nepal. North Bihar is the floodplain of the Himalayas. And if you sort of draw a line between Delhi and Calcutta, which would uh, sort of contour the Imala below the Himalaya, contour Nepal, North Bihar is more or less halfway and but a little closer to Calcutta. As the floodplain of the vast Himalayas, seven giant rivers crisscross this area, collecting the mountain rains which traveled across the land on their way to the Bay of Bengal. I've lived in India in many different states and I worked here in different capacities. I've served as a water expert for the United Nations. I've worked with several NGOs till managerial capacity, and I've been a researcher, mostly in Bihar. These rivers almost seem alive. They move back and forth like giant wild snakes, literally slithering across the land. The edge of the river is constantly in motion, and a place that is underwater one day might be dry the next. The river might simply disappear. Or conversely, a farm or village may find itself drowning in the middle of the river overnight. Outsiders consider these rivers, in particular the Kozi, as the sorrow of Bihar. But that's not true for local communities who treat them as goddesses. In 2007, the worst flood in decades hit Bihar. Roadways became rivers. People waded through the murky brown water, sometimes up to their necks, trying to save possessions or cattle. Seeking rescue, people crowded on the tops of buildings. Excessive summer rains drowned almost 5,000 villages and destroyed 29,000 homes. In the end, 40% of Bihar was underwater. In 2007, when I started managing this umbrella organization in Bihar, we underwent a major flood that involved, in my calculation, 25 million people. It was a flood that was really went really under the radar of the media. And it was a sort of a, a composite flood in which several embankments breached and that, that water sort of convoluted towards the end of the tail of the watershed, as it's called. It's, you know, the experience of a flood is never only a natural one. Even if you have water growing on your legs, it's never just the water that consumes your worries is also one of infrastructures, of how the infrastructure around you behave and sustain or, or hamper your ability to move is one of health, of, of feeling your body and your the difficulties of your bodies differently, as well as a social one. I, I you know, I face these floods mostly alone, um, of course, with, with new colleagues, with uh, 52 people that I was supposedly managing around the time with very little language skill at the time, which I had to make up uh, pretty quickly because there was no organization, no intervention, uh, partly from the state, but from nowhere else. The next year, another disastrous flood hit Bihar. This time, heavy rains caused the Kosi River to break through the river's embankments, changing the course of the entire river. And then the next year, we actually faced another major flood that... Um, Involved only 3 million people, but I think the visuals of it are particularly sort of stuck with me uh, because I used to live in a hut, sort of like maybe 300 meters from the embankment in a rural area. 
And I would go with my collaborators for a walk on the river embankments every morning and evening, uh, basically to admire this this enormous uh, expanse of, of water and mud that was pretty much extending as much as we could see. And going to look at the river, it's something that people do, even if less and less, but they, they used to do. And it involves not only watching this, this enormous expanse of water, but also listening to its gargles and from its gargles to try to understand, to infer what's the next move of this, of this dragon. And the next morning we woke up at dawn like every day and the air was strangely silent, was almost palpably silent. So we go uh, for our customary walk and and we're also tight-lipped, you know, it's almost as if we were respecting this creature, wondering if it's if it's asleep for some reason. As we get over the hump of the embankment, we realize that the river is gone that there is no no water in the banks. So in the night, the Kozi, had, the, that's the name of the river, had broken its confinement upstream and simply went to flow in an area which had been the riverbed around the century before. So if, you know, that morning that we didn't see the river, um, three million people instead, a little east from us, found themselves in the midst of the water, in the midst of a river flowing through their villages, through their houses, through their life, through their families. In many parts of the world, people put up embankments to try to control the flow of rivers. And this has been done in Bihar, time and time again. People stacked piles of rock, mud, and soil to try to control this dragon. But these embankments are nowhere near strong enough. In a sudden lurch, the river would burst through, flooding villages and homes much quicker than it would have otherwise, sending people running for their lives. Those rivers have been embanked, so levees have been built on either side, uh, often with leaving a huge space, space in between, something between 10 to even 15 kilometers of distance. And um, these embankments have also been built around some of tributaries of those rivers. So it is a very complex network of infrastructure to contain those embankments haven't really worked, and they have actually only worsened floods. They have magnified their destructive power. They have increased their frequency as well as the you know floods occur more often and are more destructive, and they last for longer, and and they're much less predictable than they were before. Controlling the river is sort of like trying to tame a wild snake. Trying to control a massive amount of unpredictable water proves to be difficult, if not impossible. These embankments are almost a way to pit soil against water. And the local understanding of water is not one that excludes soil from it. These dikes, these levees that have been constructed on the side of the rivers, right? And because these rivers are very intricate, they constantly feed on each other and then depart from, depart from each other, then building these embankments is, is a very illogical way of managing them because they almost continue to meet and then separate, right? So where exactly are you building it? 
So sometimes um, the embankments need to be need to stop somewhere, and then then it's an, the 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 other side of the embankments of of another river, which which is supposedly to be the containment. Sometimes there are multiple layers of these constructions. But if we think about the space in between the river as the space of a canal, that's absolutely not the case. So these embankments can be 10, 15 kilometers one from another. So when the river is full, it can be as large as that. During floods, there was nothing else than water to be seen. So I remember, for example, taking this train um, to reached the tail end uh, at some point, and it was around 200 kilometers of water on either side, in the sense that I could only see water on either side for that long. One of the problem of embankments is also that they impede drainage, and therefore uh, the water tend to stay, tend to stay, as I mentioned before, for much longer. The longer it stays, the more disruption it creates uh, to the ground, but it also levels and creates gradients in ways which aren't necessarily visible. So if we think about water, about a flood as creating a new horizon, which is flat, which is equal from, for everyone, that's sort of true up to a point because it does changes the gradients beneath. And, and therefore, once it leaves, it, it has changed the environment in which people were living. Uh, of course, undergoing a major flood does mean to have your life, your, your house flushed away. If it's uh, depending on the, the, on the turbulency of the water, some people decide to stay and they try to stay on slightly elevated spaces. And in other occasions, they just need to swim to safety if they can. And sometimes they cannot. Flood can last even five months. So it is not simply um, as if, you know, you're living in a sea of water. It is, it is water that, um, that recedes and grows and recedes again and grows again. And life happens around that. It's a slightly different understanding of what the space around you is altogether. There are parts of the world where climate change feels like a myth, like something that might be felt by the children of our children of our children, but not so in Bihar. Here, climate change is acutely felt. It's something that is felt right now, something hard, if not impossible, to ignore. Even in this case, climate change is one of the factors of the situation. But it's interesting as a place to live and work, particularly because it can be considered a place of accelerated climate change or anticipated climate change. It is a place where the dystopic waters that we are seeing in so many other parts of the world have been hampering people's lives since, since, since a longer time. So these floods have actually started worsening around the 80s, a couple of decades after the, the main construction of those embankments. And therefore life in, in that environment, in the environment within the embankment, which is a place where I work the most, is one of being subjected to different types of flood, either flash floods or slowly growing floods um, or expected floods that sometimes never happen or, or happen in, at a much larger scale than, than forecasted. 
Not only are the people in this area dealing with the effects of climate change, but these effects are compounded by several things, culture, caste, and economy. I study particularly, I work particularly in the area within this embankment or the area just outside it. And those are also areas where social inequalities are particularly sharp and make life particularly difficult. Bihar is actually known to be the place of floods, but is also known to be the place of sour caste violence and uh, as well as gender disparities in terms of access to, to resources of different sorts. The adversities that I've, I've spoken about aren't felt evenly. So life in North Bihar is saturated with, with difficulties of different sorts from the flood that are, continue to make it uh, disastrous despite or actually because of the very technologies used to, to prevent and to control them to the fact that drinking water is rendered toxic again, despite and perhaps because the, the technology is developed to clean it. And yet these difficulties are not felt evenly and in the sense that life in North Bihar is, is not equally difficult for everyone. In my work, I attend to the, to the struggle of those who live close to the water in general and those happen to be most often uh, from the most discriminated castes. In particular, Muzahar, Doms, Shamars, and Malas. And I also find that the ethnographies among of about those people is much less frequent in South Asia, in the literature on South Asia, as well as Bihar itself is not really has not really been a place where where ethnographers have lived and worked. The axes of differentiation in Bihar are axes of caste, but also of gender, of religion, and uh, of class and of place of ab habitation. And all of those are intricate in a way which that it's really difficult to parse them apart and to understand what one particular axe of differentiation, how one particular axe of differentiation affect life differently than others. They are rivers of mud, debris, nutrients, life, and death. I always feel a lot of deference and humbleness when watching those rivers. Some of them look like a, a, a trickle of water during the dry season, and then they become actually dragons of water and debris and mud. And whatever the remnants that they were able to wash away in their path during the wet season, when the rivers move, they transport and shuffle around nutrients in the soil. A field might be fertile one year, and another it might be completely stripped of all nutrients. Even another year, it might be completely underwater. What's interesting about floodplains in general, and particularly about the floodplain of the Himalaya, which is a particularly young geological formation, is that the land is incessantly built and wrecked by this interlacing of water, right? So the, the rivers release sediment at the same time, but they can't continuously also erode the soil. And those rivers are also not as stable as we often think about uh, because of the way in which we, are, we, we used to look at the world through maps. They actually continually evolve or basically shift their beds. 
they don't necessarily strip uh, land of their the good stuff that have helped people to cultivate and to practice agriculture, but instead they release some of those sediments and they completely erode soil in other moments. So. Um, people have been have been living around floods and a lot of societies of the world are actually fluvial society that started around rivers and because of the sediment the, the, the sediments and the and the hummus that that uh, those rivers bring with them when they flood but at the same time the river is also depicted as having an helper that cuts away uh, the path as it goes the river comes like a dragon, Luisa says. When it decides to come, nothing can stop it. I have experienced people who had built a concrete house, which is something relatively rare and just um, available mostly through some government programs. And as the river was, pass- was coming their way, they had to destroy it tile by tile, brick by brick, because they could see that the, the land was going to be taken away by, you know, little by little. Or I remember pretty visually the presence of a school which had been cut in half by the passage of the river, and you could still see the blackboard and the writing on the blackboard, but half the school was gone. Part of understanding the rivers is to understand they are not just water. So in a way, people understand water through soil and understand soil through water. They constantly evaluate one on the basis of the other as if they are, the, you know, they are made of the same thing. And even the palette through which they narrate the colors of the river is not one of blues and greens, which is you know, the most common ways in which we represent water, but is one that goes from red to blacks to yellows and browns of, of different types, which tells you that the, the water is really the solution in which a lot of uh, solvents are dissolved. One of the most visual impacts of the flooding is seeing the destruction. Half a school washed away, towns underwater. But the impact of the floods goes beyond this. Along with the water, floods bring infestations of insects, disease, and poor water quality. Living in wetness has its own set of, of ecologies that it brings with it. And those ecologies have to be seen in different time scales too. So it's about the, the new ecologies of the future, about all the waterlogged areas that remain after the flood. And for a variety of reasons, including the colonization of plants that inhibit the transpiration and the evaporation of water, there is there's a lot of, of land which is waterlogged. And therefore, that is a source of a variety of diseases, uh, including vector-borne uh, epidemics such as malaria, Kalazar, dengue, etc. You also have to see them floods in an historical time scale because the hydrogeology of the area has been built by centuries of floods. And that's why a lot of the water which is uh, extracted from the ground to, to be drinking water is contaminated with heavy metals, such as arsenic and iron and fluoride. And the water is contaminated, the drinking, drinking water is contaminated biologically 
but it's not only the an issue of floods, is the longer history of floods that contaminates even groundwater with uh, with toxic pollutants and therefore even sources which aren't affected by the biology and the, the ecology of, of the floods remain contaminated for much longer after the water has receded. So I work on water disasters in the area in general, which include floods as well as the erosion that they provoke um, and the water logging that uh, it's, it's engendered, so the sort of by the lack of drainage and by the by the way in which the embankment have messed up with the hydrogeology of the area, as well as on toxic drinking water. And if you think about it, floods is to be seen in these overlapping timescales, but at the same time is experienced mostly as a fast onset disaster. While the toxicity of drinking water is a form of um, pollution and it has bodily effects that are built over longer time. So it's what we as disaster management call a slow onset disaster. Climate change is a remarkably complex issue. It is not just scientific, nor is it merely political. The solution does not lie with just one policy, nor with grassroots endeavors alone. To deal with climate change, we will have to accept and realize its complexity. I come to this question of climate change as someone who has a convoluted training. So I studied first interdisciplinary political sciences as a a diplomat and then development, anthropology of development, development studies, and later my PhD is in environmental studies as well as in anthropology. And as an environmental scientist, I look at the fact that we have considered humans almost as a nuisance in the conceptualization of the environment on which we base our work. And then as an environmental anthropologist, instead, I'm concerned by how people live climate change, the very local reality, which, as I said before, is also global in so many ways, but it is, it's, it's felt and it has to be examined, in my opinion, as a lived reality. I think now, I think that I've been lucky to live through those floods because as a scholar it's pretty rare to be a disaster scholar who has lived through the disaster in in the same area where they work for several time and and as sort of um, lived that confusion and sort of difficulties of understanding the environment as it changes and as, as it becomes uh, difficult to live and as well as to sort of share this, this shaking life experience with, with people and learn to live it through the ways in which people live it. When I think about the ways in which we silos the study of climate change as an environmental scientist or as an anthropologist or as a political scientist, etc., is that we aren't looking at how people are trying to figure out how to do things by themselves. We think about adaptation, for example, as a political, as a policy-enacted set of possibilities. And we haven't really picked up on how much people get to know the environment around them, which an environment which is increasingly difficult to live, but yet that people have to deal with regardless of of the, the policies, regardless of what we write and think about it. And I want to shift the problem away from question of the state, at least initially, towards question of the cultural instruments we have to be resilient. 
as well as, and this is the newest part of my work, as well as how social inequalities change the way in which we look at the environment around us and therefore modify the way in which we learn about that. And then in the later stage of my work, I'll bring back the state and see how the experience of community can actually be reconciliated with the experience of policymaking. In this period, I've been concerned about how people learn from this environment and, and in particular, under which condition are people better off for learning about that. To fully deal with climate change, we must step back and see it for the multi-tiered pro problem that it is. It is culture and policy, and the solution is both grassroots and worldwide. It affects people on opposite sides of the world in such different ways, yet ways that are oddly similar. We sitting in our safe homes may never truly understand how people on the other side of the world are battling for their lives and their livelihoods. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook or Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. Remember that if you're a patron of this podcast, to check out the bonus content on patreon.com slash sparkdialogue coming out all this month. And I'll be back in the beginning of August with a new episode. See you then. Background music you heard are clips from Adagio Turu by Rockavo, Planes by Gordon Ark, Overture by Reuse Noise, La Tripletta by Virtual DJ Max, and Paper Planes featuring Arid Tone by Durden. These songs are licensed under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. More information and links to these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com. <laughs>